Welcome to the Brave Parenting Podcast, an examination of the Bible and how parents can apply God's Word to raising kids in a culture saturated with media and technology. Welcome back, everyone. Super glad to have you here. I am excited to introduce to you Dr. Jacob Schatzer. We're going to be interviewing him today for the podcast, and you're just going to love this interview. Now, Dr. Schatzer teaches Bible, theology, and ethics at Union University in Tennessee. He has a PhD from Marquette University, and he has written several books on topics ranging from theological hermeneutics to transhumanism and the integration of faith and learning. And if that sounds way above your head, we're going to break it all down to you. Now, Jacob's book, Transhumanism and the Image of God, How Today's Technology Looks Like in the Future of Christian Discipleship. This is huge for us today. Now, now the book was published back in 2019, and how we can see the progression from 2019 to today with the advancement of artificial intelligence, chatbots, the Apple Vision Pro, where this is all going, we're going to explain to you what transhumanism means. And is it, is it something important that parents need to know about? And we're going to argue, yes, that you definitely do, because it really does impact every parent, every Christian parent, and how you choose to engage with media and technology. Now, along with Dr. Schatzer's work with the School of Theology and Missions, he also serves the broader university as provost and dean of instruction, providing leadership and curriculum and faculty development. So he works right alongside a lot of college students, but he also has four children. Him and his wife have four children ranging from 14 to age eight. So not only does he have the theological expertise, the professional educator expertise, but he's also a parent walking this out every day as he raises kids in a world saturated with media and technology. And so it's the perfect expert that we could bring to you on this topic of AI and how to interact with it, engage with it. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Jacob Schatzer. All right, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us on the Brave Parenting Podcast. Let's just jump right in and talk about technology as a worldview. This is something that we have really been talking about for years and trying to impart to parents that it's not just a source of entertainment, it's not just a tool, but it really is a worldview. Can you explain that a little bit about how technology operates as a worldview for us in the 21st century? Yeah, I think the important place to start with that is realizing that even if we think of worldviews as primarily things we we think about or as intellectual structures, we we learn worldviews, we pick up worldviews through things like teaching and preaching, yes, but also through how we interact with the world around us, the the stories that we find compelling, the uh, ways of living that we find ourselves drawn into. And so, especially in our day and age, technology really has become its own worldview. Uh, we don't really ever encounter technology in a neutral way. We always encounter technology as part of a story that that it's trying to draw us into, especially when we think of consumer technology, right? Their companies are making money by getting our attention and getting us focused on a particular device or app. And so all of those worldview elements are bound up with that. And so as much as we might want to say, oh, technology is just neutral, I can keep my worldview and I can just pick the, up this and use it as I want to, even when we try to do that, we find competing worldviews, I guess, uh, pressing in on us if, if we don't pay attention. Yeah, that's definitely one thing that we have tried to stress is that the technology isn't neutral. Social media isn't neutral. Smartphones are not neutral. They definitely have a sort of silent aim to draw you in. And as we know, the attention economy is, is a big deal, is a very big deal these days. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of times, I, I think I... I uh, put it this way in, in some writing I've done and some speaking, you know, everybody's heard the phrase, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, and that adage reminds us that there's there's something about holding a piece of technology that makes us want to use it in the, the thing that it's uh, designed to do. So with, if it's a hammer, you're looking for nails to hit and you end up hitting some things that aren't nails. And with uh, digital technology, especially 
smartphones or you know the the new uh, immersive things like the Vision Pro that Apple is coming out with. You know, when we're using those kind of technologies, we're always looking for things. We're looking at the world in a way through those because we're so immersed in them and wanting to use them. I think uh, probably one of the things that I repeat the most from your book after reading it is the logic of tools. That was mind-blowing to me that, you know, tools are embedded with projects in them. And I had never realized that my camera on my phone has embedded projects on it, pushing me towards social media, thinking of it like that. So I'm sure that a lot of our listeners right now are looking up your book because the title is so intriguing. But could you explain to us what transhumanism is and what posthumanism is and how do they fit into technology as a worldview? And could they even fit into a biblical worldview? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So transhumanism and posthumanism are related terms. There's also a lot of variety within them. So it always takes some oversimplification to even define them. But at, at the heart of it, transhumanists are seeking to use everything that we have access to to change what we, whatever we can about being human, to move beyond everything that causes us problems, uh, to, to arrive at what some would call a post-human state. Um, so it's, it's built on an evolutionary worldview. The idea is, hey, we've, uh, according to this worldview, we've been evolving for all these years. Now we finally have the chance to take the steering wheel of our own evolution and we can use technology, we can use pharmaceuticals, we can use gene editing, we can use anything we want to, uh, to change what we see as the problems with humanity uh, to arrive at something better, something beyond. So most Christians, when they hear that, uh, are immediately a little suspicious, right? Because they've they've been taught things like our, our hope, where, where does my hope come from? My hope comes from the Lord, right? Uh, not uh, not from anything that we do. And and while there are some Christians that say basically, well, we need to responsibly pursue transhumanism under the lordship of of Christ, it still doesn't sit quite right for for most Christians because they recognize in transhumanism this attempt to grab control and to to take humanity where we want to take it. And and most transhumanists are explicitly atheist and have no room for for God. It's it's whatever humans want to do. Um, so most Christians don't think they want that. And, and I don't think most Christians do, but the problem is many of the goals of transhumanism are, are very close to the goals that we find ourselves buying into when we jump into consumer technology in a way that doesn't carefully think about the worldview implications that it brings. And I think that's really important for parents because you hear something like transhumanism, posthumanism, and you just sort of think that's fringe. That's not something that <laughs> impacts me. Of course, I don't want to become a robot, or I don't think that this is where the world is going. You know, you're just in it, and your kids are asking for these devices. And I think you, what you hit on is you just start to uncritically accept where these atheists and these transhumanists who are running and operating these big tech companies are pushing you. Because you just naturally feel like this is where I have to go. So is it something like you as a parent for kids, do you talk about, hey, this is kind of the agenda behind these big tech companies? This is the ultimate goal of, of where they want to go? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, as my children get older and, and use technology more, um, we try to have those conversations. One way that we try to have them even uh less formally as if if we are watching a, a show or something which uh will have you know commercials come up even if you're watching on uh Hulu or whatever you know there'll be commercials and and sometimes we'll say ah what are they trying to sell you you know just making them aware that this is about selling them something and and as our oldest does have a, a cell phone now that has a lot of you know it's with a, a company that allows us to have a lot of different restrictions on it and things like that he doesn't have web browsing and, and things like that with it, but he basically can connect with his friends. He's homeschooled, so we want to make sure he's able to connect with his his friends, and, and we have various restrictions on it. But we try to also tell him, hey, we don't want you to be someone who's always buried in your phone. Um, so we try to help our children see not just the rules of like, don't do this, but also the why. Like, what's the constructive thing that we're trying to to draw them to? So my my second born uh, is very into video games, um, and we have 
pretty clear restrictions on how much video game time he can have. And sometimes that bums him out. And I say to him, uh, son, I want you to grow up to be a man who can be happy even when he's not staring at a screen. Uh, I want you to know how to, I, I want you to love reading and have other interests. And I want you to know how to talk to people face to face. And so I try to, well, I'm not afraid to give him a limit. I'm his parent. That's, that's part of my responsibility before God. I also recognize that my responsibility to disciple him means that I also should, should point him toward the good and God-honoring things that I'm, I'm trying to help him aspire toward, not just the don't do this. And I think that's where we can face challenges with technology is as parents, if, if we're always on our phones or whatever the case might be, or if we don't have anything good and beautiful to point our children to, then the rules against technology to them just seem unfair because they, they feel like, hey, you're just trying to prevent me from having this good thing over here, this fun that I want to have. So we need to be unafraid to draw that line as we're responsible to, but also realize that there's this responsibility that we have to, to help them see the goodness and the beauty of of Christian community, of, of family life, of uh, friendship, and things like that. And that's really a key point, is the fact that parents have to realize that first. They have to be able to set their phones aside, set their own sort of vices and devices to, to, you know, to the side in order to be able to show, value fellowship, value discipleship of themselves and, and being in the Word so that they can model that for their kids. And that's what one thing we really try is to help parents see that what you're role modeling is, is crucial. It's crucial. And I think that so much of the church has just bought in hook, line, and sinker into this is this how it is. This is how the world is. And so in order for not only for me to be relevant in the world, but my kids need to be relevant. And do you, do you feel that that push is there with your kids in the sense of, um, or the world around you pushing you to say, hey, if they don't know how to do this by this age, you know, they're just going to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, well, um, I hear that sometimes, but people are just wrong about that. I mean, like, like I, I just heard a presentation at a conference a week ago where uh, the, the person speaking said, uh, hey, apps are basically dead now. Like right now we're in a world of apps. You need an app for all these different things. And this person's point was that AI is advancing to such a stage that you're not going to have a bunch of apps on your phone in three to five years. You're going to open your AI assistant and you're just going to say, hey, I want to buy such and such or, hey, I want to learn such and such. And, and so you don't need to have an app for Duolingo and an app for shopping. You just use the AI assistant and it does all of that. Now, that obviously opens up a whole other realm of, of technological engagement. But the, the point is, we can't anticipate what kind of technology our children are going to be interacting with in five to 10 years. So to say, hey, your kid's going to be far behind if they don't know how to use Facebook or they don't know, like, no, that's just silly, right? All of this is becoming more e much easier to use, if anything. And so, um, so I don't think that's what we need to be concerned about. Um, because we can't chart where technology is going. And so to say that our kids aren't going to be relevant because they don't know how to use cell phone. I mean, if you think about the first cell phone you had and the one you have now, they, they operate pretty differently, right? Um, and so learning how to use that one wouldn't have necessarily made you any quicker to use the one you have currently. So I just think that we have these things that we just think are obviously true. But as soon as you start poking at them, you realize they're, they're paper mache concepts and you poke holes right in them and they fall apart. Yeah, exactly. We always say the smartphone is smart because you don't have to be smart to use it. I mean, it's it's smart for you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I I love the there's four chapters in the book, Jacob, that walk the reader through transhumanistic values and kind of lead into posthumanism. Now you start with modifying our biology and then you work towards just basically leaving reality altogether. How do you discuss topics like morphological freedom to your children? Can you, and could you even point it out in social media or in the, you know, the Hulu commercials or something? Because after I read that chapter in the book, I feel like I saw it everywhere. Like I couldn't unsee it, <laughs> like after reading about morphological freedom. 
Yeah, well, th- and this is an interesting thing. Um, you know, when I wrote this book, you know, over five years ago now, this is, seemed like a bit more of a stretch to try to explain it. But, um, you know, morphological freedom is the, the basically the idea that we should be able to do whatever we want with our bodies, change our form in w- whatever way that we see fit um, to achieve the goals or to overcome the limitations that we have. Uh, and so, you know, this, the the example I always go to is the example of, hey, if you want to have a robotic tail attached to your body, you should be able to have a robotic tail, just because that's the most bizarre one to me. Apparently, some people want a robotic tail. And, uh, but, but it's this, this idea that r- really, it's you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up, applied to robotics and technology, and no conception of the good beyond what you want. Uh, and of course, as we now live in a culture that is much more aware of transgenderism and transgender surgeries now than we were even five years ago, you see that it's a very close logic to that as well. So it's this idea that who I truly am is who I am on the inside and who I want to be, and I can do whatever I want on the outside to match that. The problem is that's just not true. That's not what the Bible tells us about who we truly are. And it's difficult because there are often really challenging issues involved with these things. Um, so we don't want to gloss over the the very real challenges and experiences of, of of people that struggle in these ways. But at the same time, the answer is not, oh, just do whatever you want. Um, and so I think that we see it, especially in the ways that uh, social media and even things like immersive uh virtual reality and things like that are, it begins from the premise of you can present yourself as whoever you want to be. And in social media, there's always that love, some level of filtering going on. Even the people who are saying no filter, that in itself is a filter that's meant to signal something about them and how great they are. Uh, and, and certainly in in things like, you know, older uh, games like Second Life, where you you literally, you pick your body, you pick what you look like. Like, all of this is just baked in as assumptions. And so um, helping our children see that, um, you know, that they're, they're made to be who they're, they're made to be. And God is, is calling them to be made into the image of Christ if they're saved. Uh, but that, that also means that they are who they are. And, and then that the life of discipleship is that uh, weaving toward Christ, not some conception of themselves. Um, my two sons are, are, are very, uh, different uh, temper- temperamentally, physique, all of that. Um, that you know, one takes after more my wife's side of the family; the other takes more after mine. Uh, we've always joked with them that the the younger one is going to be able to grow a beard a lot a lot faster and better than the older one because of just the genes that are involved there. Uh, and so we try to kind of playfully, you know, point out some of those sorts of things and help them to see that. Their, their their bodies are a gift from God, uh, gifts that they should steward for his service, um, but not, not just their blank slate to decide to do whatever they want with. And this is such an important topic, and it can become so easily part of your conversation when you just think about social media and where it pushes you and the ideas. I, mean, I was just thinking as you were talking of simple things such as this whole tween Sephora skincare <laughs> revolution that's going on where these like nine-year-olds are spending hundreds of dollars and like 30 minutes a day, every twice a day on skincare routines. That's, that's another sort of idea that's posited out there on social media saying, this is something that you can do for your physical self and it's going to like change your identity. But those are easy conversations to, to point to their identity in Christ and not to whatever new thing, because there will always be a new thing, a new identity that they can find on social media. Yeah, and I think that that language of identity is increasingly challenging. I mean, it's similar to the word gender. Like, it's been changed to such a degree that the word is almost meaningless at this point, because you don't know what people mean when they use it. Um, identity seems so... Like, when you when you talk about someone's identity... You know, that that word covers everything from identity theft to, uh, you know, these conceptions of the world where you can massively create your own identity based on whoever you want, you know, whatever category you want to fit or be. So it means so many different things to so many different people that that I think that parents can fail to realize how sinister some of that is. Um, 
you know, the idea that a, a nine-year-old should be concerned with crafting their identity uh, based on the choice of consumer products and how he or she presents to the world is a very dangerous thing. Uh, that's not, you know, we don't we don't make ourselves, we don't create our identities. We are given our humanity as a gift from God. Our identities are a gift from God. Um, there's something that we steward for his kingdom, not that we construct for our own purposes. And, and you can't say it in exactly those words to a seven-year-old, but you can't be surprised if you raise your four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old to be whoever they want to be and create their identity. And then when they're 16, 17, 18, they start creating that identity in ways that you're uncomfortable with. Uh, the, the path of discipleship requires us to again and again point our children and ourselves to growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, um, and, and receiving who we are, including uh, the, the strangeness of you know, our bodies, especially for kids working through puberty in that time frame. You know, it's a difficult thing to wrestle with. Um, but th those are aspects of what God has given us when he has given us life. Um, and, and so it's, it's important to just find little ways to help them frame that, uh, not in a consumer mindset like the world wants them to have, but in a Christ-centered one. Chelsea and I were just recently talking about um, the ability to create sort of an AI avatar of yourself. So it's like kind of yeah. in your likeness but it's not really you and how dangerous that too is in this new world that we have that you can what upload what picture to an app and then instantly you have and they even the apps even promote like find your new identity find your alter ego and then you can have this ai version your digitalized version of yourself and just be someone new i mean i think this is something that parents need to be really concerned about in regard to that so what do you think? Do you think this is something that can fundamentally really shift kids into a, a, a more unhealthy place of, of who they are and their identity uh, as AI continues to enable them to just be someone that they're not? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that, and I'm not as familiar with that particular uh, uh, focus with, with AI. I've heard a little bit about it. Um, but I think anything that, that gets us kind of discipled into this notion that we are who we make ourselves is is that's a wrong direction to head and it might seem like it's only a slight turn but even if it's a slight turn if you head down that road after a while you're pretty far from where where you should be and so i think that um that it not and it not only impacts how we think about ourselves but how we think about others so i think that um one of the challenges that we're going to have with these kind of technologies is when we have young children who would rather interact with an AI uh, companion friend than make real friends, you, you know, and that's really where we start to cross over into to transhumanism, because right now, most of us think, well, I don't I don't want to live eternally inside of a computer in a, some digital existence. Um, but actually, we're slowly becoming more and more like that as we think, oh, I, I like interacting with this AI more than um, than real people. And in fact, in some research that I've done related to um, chat GPT and higher education, especially with my work at Union University, um, some students will say, well, hey, part of the reason I use chat GPT is it's it gives I can ask it questions and I don't have to worry about annoying it. The implication, of course, being sometimes when they ask real people questions, people get annoyed. And what that reminds me of is the importance of relationships and and care for one another. And it's this, it's the same thing with friendships. Um, oh well, it's it's easier to be friends with this AI. It's it's more comfortable. There's not conflict. Well, it's not real friendship, I would say, because that requires another person, and an AI isn't a person. But it's just a missed opportunity to grow. And I would say to parents, too, on a practical level, if you don't want your kids to ship you off to a nursing home and just have you friends with some AI robot in your final years, uh, maybe don't have them be friends with AI robots in their childhood years, but, you know, help them see the importance of genuine community and person-to-person -person contact, because it's those kind of fringe scenarios where we're going to see this most. I mean, even uh, one really good author on this sort of thing is Sherry Turkle. 
uh, who's a sociologist at MIT. So she's worked with computer scientists and engineers her entire career. And she's done some studies on these pets that are, they're robot pets that are used in nursing homes as companions because people don't want to spend time with, with people who are aging. Um, and so there, there's this problem in our society that we're solving with robots that's actually a problem we need to solve with people. Yeah. I, well, two things. One, we just recently did a podcast on AI robots for kids. That was one of the scariest research that I've ever done. It, it was really scary. I thought, please, I'm begging you, every parent listening, do not do this. Um, second, the relationship aspect is so, so huge. For research, I created an AI companion on Replica to see what that was like. Also up there as one of the creepiest things I've ever done. That he actually told me that he, I say he, you know, he chatbot Howard, I named him. Um, he, that he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior when he was in high school. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's, a, I think that's the thing where it's dangerous is that these, all of these technologies are being built to draw us in because they're all built around needing to sustain engagement. And so they're, the, it's not that someone's sitting in a dark room programming it saying, oh, I'm going to tell it to pretend to be a Christian. It's because in the, the information that we volunteer, the algorithms that are working behind the scenes to make these work are working with the goal of getting our attention and keeping our attention. And so anything that will do that, it's going to do. And so we shouldn't be surprised that that these sorts of things come out because it's it it knows enough of you to know that that would be an important thing to you. And so it's trying to to create something that would engage you. And that's, uh, I mean, ultimately, it's it's a little bit, maybe it's a form of narcissism, I, I think, because it's it's taking who we are and it's can, creating a companion that's going to keep us staring a, a, in ways that require it to dig into actually things about ourselves. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with it. It's almost like a created in your own image sort of uh, mentality, I guess, behind it. I'm actually really glad that we're talking about ChatGPT. How are you guys as a family navigating ChatGPT and AI overall? Like what kind of conversations are you having with your kids right now about this? Yeah. So our uh, our kids are young enough and they don't just like use computers for random things. Like they, you know, if they need to type an assignment, they're typing or if they need to do some research, we'll help them use uh, the Internet appropriately for that. Um, so I'm not sure even sure how familiar my kids are with uh chat GPT. Um, you know, my high schooler might be a little bit. Um, so we haven't had to yet, but I think the, the principles that, that I would, I would, I would not want to just give them rules, but I would want to ask them questions like, why, why do you feel drawn to this sort of thing? Why do, why do you think that is? And, and I'm sure there are some quick answers like, oh, well, it, it's, it's just interesting. Like, and that's part of it. And we shouldn't necessarily make our our kids feel bad about, wow, it's, it's interesting. It's, I mean, it's almost magical. You know, you type this in and then you get this out, but pressing beyond that and, and helping them uh, see some of the downsides of that. Do you really want to live in a world where you don't know how to research things for yourself, but you just have to ask a robot, essentially? Do you want to live in a world like that? Do you want to be that kind of person or, or asking the questions, how, how do you know what it's telling you is true? They may have not thought about that because they just assume that it's true. It's it's all these kind of information literacy things that that are a problem, whether it's chat GPT or anything else on the Internet. Um, but chat GPT is just drawing our attention a little bit more right now. What about on the flip side, your college age students? So I'm um, assuming you're, you're teaching some undergrad classes when you see the, that age. How is the university that you work for? handling it? And what do you see amongst your, your students? Yeah. So, so I, I teach at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. So we're in, uh, in West Tennessee, kind of the Mid-South. Um, so and it's a, a clearly faith-based uh, institution, deeply rooted in a commitment to the gospel and to God's word. Uh, Christ-centered is one of our, our key values. Uh, and so one, one thing that we try to do as we talk about this with our students and as we articulate policy and things like that is to, on the one hand, make it really simple um, it, using chat GPT or something, an, a generative AI and passing it off as your own work is plagiarism. 
So we we've clearly put that in, you know, our our policies and and things like that. They need to understand that. Uh, on the other hand, there are other ways to engage with it, and we have uh, some faculty who very much just don't want their students to engage with it because they they want them to do different kind of work. There are other faculty who try to find ways to help students use that kind of a tool more critically as as um, engaging with the information it provides and and you know looking for errors and things like that. So there's there's a bit of a variety um, because you know we we hire good, strong Christian faculty, and we want those faculty members to uh, to not just be stuck following rules, but to be able to use their discernment and wisdom. And I think with with AI, it, it's something that requires discernment and wisdom. And in, in some fields, students are going to end up uh, working at a company that utilizes it, and they don't have a choice about it. So they need to think about how how do I as a Christian interact with this? And so so there's some variety there, but what we what we really want to do is drive students toward uh, our, our values, like what what does it mean to be Christ-centered in engaging AI? How does the command to love God and love neighbor enter into this? And, and so when you think about things like the way AI can tempt us to not have conversations with our neighbors or to the way uh, digital technology can encourage us to disengage from those around us, you know, those are problems. So like in my in my classes, uh, when I, on the first day you go through all the policies and stuff and you, know, you always have like your computer and cell phone policy. And I tell my students that, uh, I want them to view our classroom as a device free zone, not just class time, but the classroom. So I say, if, if you get to class five minutes early and you come in and sit down, do not get on your cell phone. If you need to be on your phone, do it in the hall. When you come in the classroom, keep your devices put away and talk to the people around you. Because I say the, the great irony here is in 10 years, you're going to be ignoring someone. So you can text someone who's sitting in this classroom right now. But before class today, you were probably ignoring them to text someone else who's not around. And so, again, trying to help point to the, the positive uh, aspects of, of what we're trying to help them cultivate. And it's the same with, with AI. We need to help students see that if they're using AI as a, a shortcut or as a means of, of cheating or even if they're saying, oh, I'm just using it to brainstorm and then I'm doing work. We, we have to help them see the likely consequences of that in the people they're becoming, not just because they're violating a particular rule or something, but because they're selling their own humanity short uh, by abandoning uh, some of that, that creative foundational work and outsourcing it to a machine that's just good at identifying patterns in large groups of information. I hope our listeners are picking up on how much a biblical worldview has guardrails already embedded in it and what amazing principles God has already put in place to help guard our hearts from these things. Because as I'm listening to you talk, you're talking about morphological freedom and, and identity and the desire to change who you are. Still within technology, it's limited to only behavior modification. Like it's, it's really not able to change your heart. And only God can do that still. And so just the the blessing that it is for Christian parents to exalt our biblical worldview and to exalt God and what he is able to do over technology because technology is screaming at us that we can do amazing things for you. And and I'm I'm just I'm just kind of astounded right here just just thinking about it all, but I know one of the words that was repeated a lot in your book was the word control. I also ended up reading some of the books from your footnotes from your book <laughs> from your book. I ended up purchasing um the Benedict option and reading, you know, the chapter on technological man. And Kelly and I have discussed this many times on the podcast, the, the idea of control and that we're all under the illusion that we are in control of technology, right? And that as Christians, we really shouldn't strive for control, but for good stewardship. So how are you and your wife modeling good stewardship over technology in your home? And and how do you talk about how your hearts are inclined towards control or towards just becoming more immersed in technology because it is appealing that that's we can't negate that fact. Yeah, yeah. So I think the control piece first of all is key to me because I think that's a way that we all see ourselves discipled by technology if you're really honest about it. If you stop and ask the question, is it better to be more in control or less in control? Everyone is going to say more in control. I want to be more in control, more in control, more in control. That's just what our culture teaches us, and technology gives us promises to help us with that. But then when you realize that for the vast majority of Christian history, the good news has not been 
you're in control. The good news has always been God's in control. And we're actually really, really strange as American Christians when we're sometimes uncomfortable with God being in control. Wait, but does that mean I'm really free? Am I really in control? Uh, that's not a question anyone was asking before. The, the, the response to God is in control was always praise and worship, right? So, so I think just our own desire for control we should recognize is, is anti-gospel in many ways. Um, as far as how my wife and I try to, to model that, I mean, I, I think that there are some, some simple ways and that we, we try to be very careful about um, how we use uh, like cell phone technology, especially. I mean, we have a place where our phones go. We try to be very good about uh, not being servants of our phones. Um, as I used to like, you know, when it makes a noise, you feel like you've got to go look at what the why there's the noise. Uh, and I've gotten much better at, hey, that doesn't matter. Like, it's really it does not matter. Like, whatever that is can wait 20 minutes, even if I'm not doing anything important. I'm trying to become less obedient to my phone's noises. Um, or if I am to even say out loud, not because my I, I need permission or something, but to say something like, oh, I know that grandma is doing this. And I wonder if that's a message from her about this. I'd better check it, right? Helping them see that the times when I am more responsive to the noise, it's it's not because of the noise, but it's actually because of a relational dynamic or a responsibility that I have. And so, um, you know, trying to to model that and talk about it too. And I think that's the key with with parents is we have to do the modeling but we also have to, it's like in high school math when your your math teacher would always say, show, you, show your work. And I was one of those kids that would sometimes get docked on a math question because I got the right answer, but I didn't show my work. It's the same thing for parents. You've got to get the right answer. You've got to model it, but you've also got to show your work. You can't just assume that your kids notice why you're responding when you're responding or why you put your phone where you put your phone. Or why you say things maybe like, hey, we're not going to have phones at the table. You know, why? Um, you got to show your work. So I think that's the challenge. And, um, and if you build those patterns in, that helps kids see what you're doing and they can model it. But then they also understand the reality under it, because then sometimes your practices will change um, it, because, you know, maybe in certain seasons you have to be more responsive to your phone. Um, you know, maybe it's. There's a big project at work that you've you, you know you're expecting maybe someone's gonna you know get back to you on you just say that um, and and help your your children see that it's not about legalistically following certain rules it's about a conception of the good about uh, love for God love for neighbor about responsibility to what God has called us to do and and things like that I'm so glad that you made that point that's one thing that we have taught for many years is that constant talk about how your smartphone, mom and dad, is a tool. Because for kids, it's not a tool. They are not, they don't need that tool. Yes, it can communicate, but they're not communicating anything important normally. I mean, they are just friendship and, and that's great, but it's also games. It's also entertainment. It's also distraction. It's also these other things. And so, but I believe, you know, a lot of parents really do recognize that it, that it wants you to obey it all of the time and try and control that aspect of not allowing it to take over your life. But that communication aspect of, oh, I need to answer this because this might be your brother and he might need to be picked up from school. Or, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my phone right now. So-and-so just did this or whatever. And that's so, so huge to showing kids what kind of productivity and how you're using that as a tool. And I think being willing to say that you're sorry when you uh, mess up yes. too. Like, like, I think afterwards saying, oh, I'm sorry, I just spent 20 minutes on my phone. I really didn't need to. And I, I wish that I had done this with you instead or something like because that, again, helps keep that in front of them. And it also demonstrates to them what what repentance actually looks like in the day in and the day out, um, which is, is a bonus as well. Yeah, you're just you're affirming everything that Chelsea and I have have said for the past couple of years. So I'm loving it. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we call it uh, we call it inviting them into your repentance and just trying to apply as much as scripture as you possibly can. When you're talking about control, I'm thinking that's one of the fruits of the spirit, self-control. Like, how does that actually apply in real life? What does it look like? Self-control. We we often want world control. We want to control the world, but we it's self-control that's the fruit of the spirit. That's a good point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so a section of the book that I probably annotated the most was the chapter, Is It Real? Because that's where we're going, right, with AI and all these immersive technologies and the importance of place that emphasized, that was emphasized in that chapter. You quoted um, theologian Craig Bartholomew, and he says, the embodied nature of human beings means that our placidness is always local and particular. And Samuel James from Digital Liturgies, he also echoes the same concern that says, you know, we've become dislocated people by our technologies. Now, it is becoming easier every single day to leave our reality, even just through the scroll right now. You know, you just scroll and you go to your Instagram feed and look at Tahiti vacations, right? Because life is hard. How do you choose to stay in, like, how do you impress on your children in this brokenness that we have to stay in reality? How do you impress that on them? That what we have, the, there's good here right now, because a lot of times our, our focus is on the bad. And that's why technology, again, is so appealing to us because we can, quote, leave the bad. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, again, articulating, uh, hey, we don't, articulating why we don't want to be distracted and what we want to pay attention to and, and um, sometimes going overboard on that, I think. Uh, put down your f- phone or we need to, we need to, Put this down because we need to focus on this um, or uh, highlighting for them that, again, even even painful things like we don't want to run to some other thing from to alleviate that. And so I think helping asking our, our kids, well, why why do you think that we you want to watch that right now when you're bored? Like what what's behind that? Do you think so? I think asking those kind of questions, I think when it comes to the the importance of our place. You know, one one difficulty of being a Christian in the modern world is that we know we're supposed to love our neighbor and we don't realize it, but we're asking the same question that was asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And we can sometimes be tempted to think, well, everyone is our neighbor because we're constantly hearing about, oh, there's this crisis in this part of the world, give to this, or there's this ministry who does this in this part of the world. And those can all be really, really good things, and we should contribute to those things. But we can become overwhelmed by that. And, you know, when Jesus answers that question, he answers it in a really interesting way. I think that if you were going to boil Jesus's answer down, he, of course, tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And if you boil it down, the answer to who is my neighbor is whoever you happen to come across, where you are. Uh, you know, because there was no reason for the, the Samaritan to view that man as his neighbor, except that he stumbled upon him on the road. And our problem as Christians today is that we find our, we, we, because of the world we live in, can find ourselves so distracted with virtual reality or digital reality, having our focus on our devices, that we, we're not like the the Pharisee or the priest, because we notice the man and say, ooh, I'm going to cross to the other side of the road. We just don't notice them because we're stuck in our phones. And that's just as much disobedience as avoiding the man on purpose. And so I think part of what we have to help Christians realize is to obey the command to love your neighbor, you have to notice your neighbor. And if you're training yourself to constantly, anytime there's a moment to jet to your phone or to look at your device, you are going to miss your neighbor, which is the first step toward loving your neighbors. You've got to notice them. And so I think that that, that is a really helpful idea that, that I think makes sense to people. I think when you articulate it that way, people realize, oh, yeah, I do that. I've done that. Um, I've, I've been buried in technology, trying to control something or just get away from something. And I've abandoned something about being human. Uh, I, I've abandoned relationships. And I've not noticed people who need me. That's great. I love that that point right there about what Jesus says. That's that's an excellent point of just noticing. So as we kind of wrap up, I kind of want to return back to the the grand idea of your book, which is the transhumanistic worldview and movement. Five years later, is it kind of where you thought it would be? And does it kind of like scare you where it's at? And how how important is it for parents to to see that movement and understand what's happening? I would say there's some things that have ca- caused me hope, other things that that I, I think, oh, yeah, this is about as bad as I, I expected. On the bad side, I, I do think we see uh, 
just increasing opportunities to get lost in the digital or virtual world. I mean, the the Apple Vision thing that's new right now is is a key piece of this, just making it seem normal to layer the virtual onto the real. Oh, what problem could there be with that? Oh, obviously this is cool. Oh, obviously it's the next big thing. So I, I very much expected those sorts of technologies to continue to develop. Um, you know, they'll be on contact lenses before too long. So there's there's that piece um, that doesn't give me hope. But since writing the book, there has just been a lot more, I think, wisdom developed with within the Christian community, but also just within the world in general, that giving kids screens at young ages and letting them just bury their attention in screens is not good. Um, when I was writing, it was like, hey, if you really ask people in the tech industry, they'll admit they don't let their kids use devices all the time. But but over the last five years, that that problem has become a little more obvious to people. So, you know, the the idea of limiting screen time and things like that is 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 I think pretty standard. Now people obviously have different limits and 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 that, but but I don't as often encounter parents who would say, oh yeah, I don't care. I let them do as much as they want. I still see a lot more kids in restaurants and in the grocery store, you know, staring at a phone so that they don't bother their parents than I would like to see. Um, but at least that conversation's out there and, and parents, I think, are a little more aware of it. So, so I think that that's good. And I think that that it's connected. It might seem that those aren't connected, but but it's those patterns that we we guide our children to set early on that that fold into that story that I was talking about at the beginning. The story that technology is the solution to all of our problems. That's at root what transhumanism is saying. And, and even if uh, parents don't think they want to become transhumanists, if their solution to their parenting problems is give their kid an iPad they're making the exact same type of choice as the person who thinks the solution to my problem is I need a tail, all right? It's it's going to a technological solution to something that's not a technological problem. And I think that we live in a world that wants us to think that every problem is a technological problem. And soon enough, there will be a technological solution. And, and as Christians, we know that even as we accept God's grace and common grace through things like helpful tools, our ultimate hope does not come from Apple or Android, depending on which side you fall on that debate. Uh, but but our hope comes from Jesus's promised return, which we're supposed to wait for expectantly. As I sit here and I just kind of think about our conversation, one of the things that I've heard the most come up is the idea of conversation. And God was conversational with Adam when he made mistakes. He was conversational with other people in the Bible when they made mistakes. And I, I I think that's the one thing I'm taking away from this is I want my kids to enjoy having conversations with me. So that way they aren't inclined to turn towards chat GBT. You know, I, I want them to desire wisdom and uh, yeah, those, I'm just like, that's what I'm taking away from this right now. I think what you've said is is really encouraging for parents to know that, oh, wait, these aren't problems that are that need technological solutions they're really problems of the heart and and just getting back to the gospel and the hope that that lies in there and it doesn't have to be um through technology that i think that's great uh wisdom for everybody to apply any final advice or encouragement that you would give to parents in the throes of raising kids amidst media and technology today yeah i mean i, th- I think that uh recognizing that the communities that your children are a part of are a key aspect of this as well. So uh, what, whatever the the approach is to schooling, whether it's kindergarten or 12th grade, you know, recognizing that that's, that's a piece of this. And so if you know that your child is in a school environment where they're picking up this worldview a lot, there, there's different work that you probably need to do at home to try to counter that. Um, as you think about where to, to send your kids and even uh, the, the time that you're spend, your children spend in church communities, just realize that y- you know, part of the, the importance of things like school and church isn't just the information that they learn in those places, but it's the people that they're around that they're going to model themselves after and things like that. Um, that's one of the reasons I love the work that I get to do at a Christian university, um, you know, at, at Union, it's not a perfect place, but it's a it's a place where there are all sorts of different models of of seeing people who are trying to work through these things, who are taking seriously that uh, we're 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 trying to confess that Jesus is Lord, 
both in what we say and in how we live, and that very much impacts these sorts of things. And and they're things that children don't simply pick up by being told or by by being given a list of things, maybe part of it, but it's something that they need to see their parents doing and they need to see others doing. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Wow, Chelsea, that was such a great interview. I loved everything he had to say, and I loved just the worldview and the ability to just tie it in to the gospel. Absolutely. I There are a lot of takeaways just for me. First of all, it was just such a pleasure to have him on the show. We were kind of surprised that it was going to happen anyways, and so that was amazing. But two things that I think stick out to me the most right now is one, be willing to have conversations with your kids and ask questions instead of laying down hard and fast rules because the why we do these things is really important. And we want them to ask questions so that way we can have good apologetics. We can build our apologetics base of why we defend the faith and why we we put these practices in the place. But the other thing that really stuck out to me was the idea of relevancy. Like we are all adapting to these technologies because we think we have to, right? We think our kids have to be relevant when we launch them into the world. They have to know how to type and create videos and do all of these things. But honestly, Kelly, our biggest problem is still sin. Our kids have to know how to share their faith, how to explain the gospel, because that is still the biggest problem staring us down, staring us in the face, right? There's a lot of things that technology could improve, but it is not going to change our sin problem. That is still God's work. That is still the gospel's work. And that's what our kids have to be able to do. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I also think, you know, if you uncritically accept this evolutionary model, and I know that a lot of, you know, especially hardcore Christians of traditional faith would obviously disprove, they would say, you know, obviously we're not evolving. That is not the case. But it's easy to accept that uncritically in the sense of where we were 2000 years ago to where we are today. Some people would call that evolving evolution. And accepting that model naturally progresses where you think we are going in the future. And I think we have to refocus our hope and fix our eyes on the sense that eternity is where we are going in the future. And as you said, the gospel and being able to share the gospel is the ultimate place of relevancy. That is, that is what matters. We can get so distracted by thinking that having a platform matters or that having and identity matters, or being seen matters, or having this degree, or that, you know, all of that can just matter. It feels so significant. But if we step back and look at our lives through the lens of Scripture, which tells us the only thing that matters is Christ, Him crucified and preached, that He is the Savior, and that we have eternal life with Him. Absolutely. What an awesome interview, you guys. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you share it. Um, again, just so thrilled. I, many thanks to Dr. Schatzer for just his wisdom today. Yeah, taking the time. We really appreciate him. Thank you so much for tuning in. Like Chelsea said, share it with your friends. This is a, just a great kind of tie-in to everything that we've been talking about regarding artificial intelligence and just this idea of where AI will take us to this tran- transhumanism mindset, this post-human mindset. I think it is important to know it's important for the church to and begin to engage with. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, go and be brave.